Hello and welcome to the Cicada Land podcast. My name is Jordan Foster and today we're talking with Dr. George McGavin. Really, really excited for this one. George is an entomologist, a zoologist that specialises in studying in insects. So George, uh, for the longest time I've been a fan of George's work. He's been on this series, right, which I'm a big fan of, called the Lost Land series. So you have in it Expedition Borneo, Lost Land of the Tiger, Lost Land of the Jaguar, Lost Land of the Volcano. And essentially the, the whole premise of the show is all of these different experts on the natural world go to these far-flung places around the world and try to gather as much data as they can in their base camp about the, the environment and the ecosystem around them and use that data to protect the species local to that environment. But please do watch it. You can find the series on uh, BBC iPlayer. Um, it's one of my favourite documentary series. Do seriously check it out. But on to George's work. Uh, George studied at the Imperial College London as well as in Edinburgh. Um, he's been a wildlife TV presenter for quite some time now. I'm going to stop jabbering on about it too much and just get straight into the podcast. But yeah, enjoy. I could write a lot more. I find it very hard. It's 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 really hard to get you know onto these mm. things. I mean, I'm 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 trying to write my uh, my little memoirs, which is mm. it, I find it very very hard at the moment. I mean, I've, I've been at it for about four years now. Right. Wow, really? I'll get there eventually. I'll yeah, there. yeah. And uh, obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, obviously your um, your TV career comes into mind as well. Um, yeah. yeah, which is extensive. The reason why I reached out to you in the first place is because I've been such a massive fan of the Lost Land series. Ah, the Lost Lands. Mm. Well, you know, it, it wasn't always called that. Because right. uh, we made five of them. And the first one was Expedition Borneo. And yes. that was dreamed up as a way of bringing conservation to a mass audience and to really do the science, get in there, team, film it as it happens, no unscripted, get a big team in the jungle and just do it, you know? Yeah. And it was, it, was, it was a brand new idea. And it was first shown, the first, the first series, well, it was a series, it was five half hours. So it was shown as five half hours stripped across the week. And it did fairly well. And so the next year they said, well, let's do um, another one. So we went off to Guyana. Mm. And it was up to the last minute. It was would have been called Expedition Guyana. Mm. Uh, and somebody at the Beeb said, oh, I'm not quite sure what that's all about. I said, well, you know, it's an expedition like the Bornean one, only in a different place. Yeah, yeah. In Guyana. Funny in that. The, the world. <laughs> yeah. And he went, no, 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 no. Let Let's call it the lost land of the Jaguar. I went, yeah, okay. Mm. We only filmed one Jaguar and that in infrared or, you know, uh, on a log mm. uh, in, a, in a camera trap. So, of course, it wasn't, you know, long before the reviewers said, lost land of the Jaguar. You mean land of the lost Jaguar? Ha, 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 ha. You know, very funny. <laughs> But it stuck, and it was a good, it was a really nice title. And of course, that then became The Lost Land of the Volcano, which was the best of the five, I thought. Yeah. The Lost Land of the Tiger, which was in its own way, uh, you know, really, really good. Mm. And then, then we did something completely different, 
as number five, which is called The Dark, which was really difficult. Yeah. I mean, if you're, a, if you're filming stuff, you don't want to film it after dark, you know, because <laughs> it's really hard. Mm. So it was like the most difficult thing you could ever do is to go into a jungle and film after dark. In fact, yeah. I, I came as close to death as I think I ever have done on that, on that shoot in the Amazon. Well, because it was dark and there were snakes everywhere. And I was supposed to walk along this path and go, oh, yes, there's a soldier. Oh, look, there's a soldier. Yeah. Hmm. And I saw what, what I thought was a, a movement under a leaf, a large leaf, I have to say. Hmm. So I said to the camera director, hey, I think there's something, I think there's something under this leaf. So I, I bent down, you know, gingerly and not that, uh, with a stick about hmm. this long, <laughs> a foot and a half long. And yeah. I, gently lifted up the stick, only to find uh, a fer de lance snake, which is one of the ones that's 80% of nasty accidents yep. in the new world are a result of a bite from a fer de lance. And this thing was really annoyed. And of course, they, they don't like head torches. So mm. I'm staring at this thing with a head torch. <laughs> and I immediately go and push my head torch off to the side. The cameraman goes, Oh, can't see the snake, George. <laughs> yeah, there's a very good reason for that, mate. And you won't be seeing it anytime soon. And I, I, you know, I gingerly put the leaf back down. But that was, that was a two, three foot snake. And yeah. my snake was only this long. And it's not nice. No. That had gone from my nose or, you know, whatever. There we go. Yeah, you're far away from help. Yeah, and we were, you know, day day and a half by slow boat from you know anything remotely resembling an accident in America. Yeah. so yeah it was difficult you really have to keep your wits about you yeah definitely it's um it's a bit of a lifelong dream to be able to um go to the amazon or go to like places nearby there like guyana or like do it just do it <laughs> well i i the the, your cupboard there. the thing I would, I'd need something, I'd need, I'd need a, a mission, I suppose. I'd need to be able to contribute to uh, the natural world and preserving it more than what the flight, uh, like the, the pollutants from the flight, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. I know everything has got so difficult now. Everything mm. has got so difficult. We're, we're all so aware. I, th I think people are, are just they're eco anxious there's such a deal of anxiety now mm. i mean you know attenborough when he started he didn't think anything about flying all over the world and we, we flew on these expeditions you know to borneo to png to mm. guyana you know and and you can argue and all, not all of us but quite a few of us offset that by handing cash to the World uh, Land Trust who buy forests, who, who, you know, in large amounts of it mm. and say that will stay a forest, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's, it's you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. That's true. It I mean, is true. At least we're not flying for a, a holiday, you know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly right. It's um, we, we aren't enjoying it. We're sweating. Actually, it's wonderful. I, yeah, I love it. I I'll be giddy. <laughs> begin to tell you how exciting those expeditions were, and the volcano one was just 
the most exciting trip ever. Yeah, yeah. Boys adventure times 10 and, and girls adventure mm. because we are as, as remote as we could possibly be. We were, you know, really far into the jungle, deep, deep, deep. Uh, had to get in by um, helicopter where they, they can only fly every other day because of clouds. Mm. We were, yeah, I mean, if anything, it, I, I do think about it now. I think of all the health and safety forms we had to fill in. And there was a, there was a big stack of them, you know, like this yeah. thing. Mm. And, you know, they say, well, you know, what's the chance of dying? Well, the medium, low, high, medium. <laughs> a jungle environment is somewhere where you, you just cannot predict it. But we, we, we had a GP type, you know, person on the team who could have done minor surgery. Mm. If you'd had something serious and had to get out, you know, it was, yeah. But that was, God, it was exciting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This was the Lost Land episode where you set up um, a light trap at the at the top of the Valley Ridge and all these moths and night creatures. Honestly, Jordan, this yeah. is a classic case of luck, sheer mm. luck. And when you're filming, you have to be prepared. You've got to do your homework. You've got to be fit. You've got to know what you're talking about because it's unscripted and if the camera's in your face and you're holding something and you don't know what it is. Yeah. The guy I, I once saw on an American marine documentary classic. So yeah. there's swimming about with their masks on. Yeah. And this thing comes past him. Like that. And the guy says to his mate, what's, what's that? And the guy said, it, it's a fish. I went, gee, I know it's a fish. Come on. You can't do better than that. You know, you anyway, so we'd filmed this fantastic helicopter shot, right, of yeah. me spreading the white sheet out on the volcano rim. Now, the helicopter was a mile and a half away. Okay, it had one of these amazing uh, cameras underneath, which is stabilized, and you can get my whole shoulder, head and shoulders from a mile and a half away, okay? Wow. And then the camera operator pans back. So, it, so I get smaller and smaller and smaller. The jungle gets bigger and bigger and bigger until mm. I'm a pixel, virtually, in the frame which shows the audience just the immensity of the forest. So that was all in the can. So the last night that we had to film the actual trapping of moths, it rained. Oh my God, it was biblical, <laughs> biblical rain. I mean, it was laughing then for hours. And I said to the director, look, mate, um, we won't be doing the moth trapping tonight because it's really wet. Yeah. And he looked at me and said, George, We've just spent £10,000 on that shot. You know the one we use spreading the sheet out? Okay. And if we don't catch any moths tonight, we can't use that shot because it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. So you're going to catch moths tonight. And if virtually, I went, well, you know, don't blame me if it doesn't happen. Well, of course, I was completely bowled over. I had no expectation at all of catching mm. anything. And yet, and yet, it was like I was standing in in frame and people were throwing buckets of moths at me just literally just lobbing them at my head <laughs> and and it shouldn't have happened i mean as i say in the in in the film i say this this shouldn't be happening this is this is i mean if you went out in the uk to catch moths in the pouring rain mm. you wouldn't catch anything no except the cold rats <laughs> yeah. and which does indicate one very important thing mm. a that that area it's high up, but, it, but it's very rich. And the, the bulbs that we use don't really work 
over an enormous range. So these things aren't aren't flying from the other edge of the crater. They're, mm. they're, they're flying from a, the closest area around the bulb. Yeah. Yeah. Which means it's incredibly diverse. And mm. what worries me about this is that these high altitude zones are pretty rare because there are very few of them. And with global warming, of course, the, the altitudinal zones will, will move up so that things that are now too warm down here will shift up and they'll shift up and so on until they get to the top where there's nowhere to go. Mm. So all the ones at the top that really can't exist anywhere else will, will just die out. And that's a worry. Uh, but it was, yeah, it, it's something I will take probably to my grave. My, mm. my last thought will be, Moths. Lost land of the volcano. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was that good. And I, and I actually thought, uh, as well as with my oak tree show I did, uh, I thought, if I don't make any TV ever again, I've made that. I've been involved with that. That's brilliant. That's absolutely fantastic. And, of course, the, um, the Lost Land um, expedition series, they were in a way, like the one with, well, it was Guyana, essentially. You were gathering all this data about all these amazingly uh, diverse areas of rainforest uh, and you were just cataloguing all the different species and you were going to take that data and bring it to the local governments to it convince them to protect the area from logging. Is that area still untouched? Yeah, well, <laughs> huh. that that's it's an interesting story. With the Bornean one, the mm. first one, Expedition Borneo, that was a grade two reserve, um, forest reserve, which meant it was protected until such times as they decided it would be logged. Mm. And there wasn't really a huge amount of protection. Well, that program was seen by millions of people over the next year, all around the world. Mm. And they were sufficiently... Uh, affected by the show to change it into a grade one reserve. So that whole area around Imbac was afforded a higher degree of protection. Mm. Now with Guyana, um, 80% of Guyana is jungle. Mm. Uh, the majority of people who live there are right on the coast in, in one little town, well, you know, one town, Georgetown. Mm. And there's a, there's a scattering of individuals elsewhere. So yes, it is, it is, threatened by logging to some degree, by mineral extraction, other things. But it's not threatened as much as some other countries are. But they are very aware of its value. And in fact, the, 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 head, the head honcho, Mr. Bharat Jagdio, had this brilliant idea. He wanted to basically offer all the jungles to the world and say, this is the rain, this is our jungle, this is the rainforest. We will protect it in for forever, in return for and you know we we as a as a globe as a, a, a planet cannot expect people who have this high value resource to just keep it forever for free for for everybody else mm. because it's a resource that they need education they need healthcare they need other things they don't have coal to sell they don't have high engineering they don't have biotech you know this is their value mm. and and if we value it which the world should do it surely makes sense to give countries like this 
cash in return for keeping it safe forever mm. in return for cash, which, which they can use for education, healthcare, etc. Mm. And it seemed like to me a no brainer. And uh, the, the following year he, he came over to, you know, to the UK mm. to put forward this, this, which I thought was a groundbreaking innovative idea, which could have been used as a, a plan to safeguard forests around the world. And he saw, who did he see? Gordon Brown. <laughs> well, that mm. was it. My mm. heart sank. And he went, well, well I don't think this makes uh, uh, prudent fiscal policy. Uh, and it got kicked into the long grass, and that was it. So we did nothing. We did nothing. This was an opportunity to put the great back into Great Britain, which we dutifully kicked into touch. You know, mm. And I think Norway and a couple of other countries did step up to the plate and they did say, yes, this is a great idea. Of course it is. It hasn't gone much <laughs> further than that. Mm. But, you know, we, there's a lot of talk, Jordan. There's a lot mm. of green talk, a lot of greenwash around the place. Oh, yes, we think it's very important. But they won't put their cash where they're, you know. Mm. And that I find very frustrating and annoying i can imagine yeah i can certainly imagine especially with all the work you do i mean i work for an organization that i can't say on air when i'm not wearing um not wearing the uniform i can't buy buy my contract um but it's um we talk about um preservation of the rainforests and Borneo and the palm oil plantations and all that kind of horrible deforestation and like in the Amazon where they're clearing huge swaths of rainforest for cattle and soy plantations and things like that. It's, it's totally depressing. Yeah. And when you get a place like Brazil with the head of state that we have now who just doesn't give a monkeys. Nope doesn't give the monkeys mm. and you know we shouldn't be feeding cattle in europe on soybean that's been grown on on cleared land mm. we should be feeding them on grass on pasture we shouldn't be feeding them on grain or soya uh palm oil it, it was found in west africa 50 years ago and somebody thought oh this is this is rather useful stuff you can squeeze the nuts there and get all this wonderful, wonderful edible oil out. We can use it for everything. Yeah. And so it came to pass and it is used, I think one, one thing in five or six that you buy in the shops, it's got palm oil in it, everything from soaps, cosmetics, you know, foodstuffs. And it, you know, it, there should be laws saying this contains palm oil. And, mm -hmm. and, but they, and there are some, but they, there are something like 200 other ways of saying palm oil. That yeah. You wouldn't even know what palm oil, you know, yeah. oxy, tiny, kernelate and stuff, you know, and, and folks just go, even if you're really keen on it, you go, well, let's see if this, in the, the really small print, you know, I'll just get my hand lens out and just you know, examine this uh, <laughs> product here. Uh, and, uh, oh, it's got something that sounds, oh, that's all right. Because it doesn't say palm oil, you know, but it does contain palm oil. Yeah, exactly. And we shouldn't buy it. But of course, Oh, but these people in these poor countries need money. Well, it's not the people who get the money. It's the big international conglomerates and they're the people who get rich. And 
when I filmed first, in fact, I, when we filmed on Expedition Morio, mm -hmm. we drove through palm oil plantations for something like five hours, mm. which up until 10 years ago had been primary forest. Mm. And they, they lie. They say, oh, you know, we only plant it in secondary regrowth. No, they don't. They clear forest, sell a timber, plant the palm oil, and so it goes. You could virtually see the edge of the forest going ahead of you as you mm. drove. It was, it was that quick. Yeah, and there's a, there's a man that works with audio all the time. And I've listened to, and I've listened to all kinds of different um, researchers out in the field and things like that about, and sound recordings of um, like insects and birds and things like that. And the difference, the stark difference between lush rainforest audio and palm oil, even when they're like 10, 20 metres apart, is, is deafening silence. It really is. Well, John, we, we actually use that in the film. So I saw actually, yeah. From me in the jungle, mm. bees and ants and stuff, and noise and hornbills and all the rest of it. And we cut to palm oil plantation, uh, hot, dry, a few snakes. Bob, <laughs> I think, was there. Uh, and some cockroaches. And that was it. Uh, yeah. and, and, but it's money. And the root of all the problems are money. Nobody does anything for the sake of the environment. It's mm. all to satisfy shareholders and money. And this is where I, I have to get on my high, high horse here a bit. Go for it. Capitalism is, has been very good. It has brought more people out of abject penury and hardship than probably anything else. And it works very well when there are relatively few of you. But there are now so many of us that it doesn't work anymore because capitalism depends on you having lots of people, lots of consumers to buy stuff they don't actually need. Mm. And that might work with a billion, but when you're 7.8 billion people and rising, it's going to break down. And it is already, we are seeing it around the world from east to west, north to south. We are seeing clear evidence of that breakdown. And this is why people are getting eco-anxious. There are some people out there who are, I mean, I get anxious every day. I get mm. upset. Not every day. Sometimes I think, what the hell? You know, it's going to end. We're, our, <laughs> our time on Earth will stop eventually. Yeah. Might be at our own hands or it might be something else. But, you know, large animals on Earth don't last any more than one to ten million years you know that's it your time's up buddy next <laughs> yeah exactly you know? and i so, so i sometimes take the big view and i think oh don't don't worry about it. it you know just keep on going the way you're going the the stuff will hit the fan and we'll have to learn trouble is we don't seem to learn mm. as the great jared diamond said we are the only species with a recorded history from which we refuse to learn. Mm. Oh, it's painful. It, it, is, it is painful. painful. It is painful. Mm. But that's it. And I, I, I don't know what to do about it. Nobody knows what, what to do about it. Even if you had Attenborough on the show mm. talking about it, he wouldn't know what to, you know, to do about it. It's too big. It's, it's too big. And people want money yeah 
Yeah, I know. It's um, it feels oh, like with within the last four or five years or so, I've been noticing, and this might be a bit of naive me being naive, or maybe some optimism that needs to be smashed down. But within the last five years or so, um, I've noticed a real awareness for the natural world with the younger generations, generations younger than me uh, and mine. And and it's it seems like that there's a real momentum, rome- momentum coming of people that are um, 30 and, and younger that really want to that really know what's going on in the in the rest of the world and really want to make a difference and they are being really diligent and buying the right products and not buying too much and not traveling too much on airways and my I've got two kids now and I'm sure that they're going to be a part of that um like zeitgeist I suppose of being um eco aware and just yeah just doing just doing the right thing um I think it's it's really yeah you you're totally right and I've no I have no answer for it. But I mean, look, look at us we're we're sitting in our nice houses where we we both have very fancy laptops mm. we're talking over the, the internet which of course you know the internet is a wonderful thing you might say it is educational it's supposed to be the the paperless office goes it's not we're still using paper mm. but we're sending gazillion-y billions of little messages going, how are you? Yeah, can I see you at the shop? And all this is being sent. It all costs electricity. There are server farms in Iceland which are barely able to cope. And every message you send has a cost. Yeah. Those server farms have to be cool. They they use energy up. <laughs> and all to say, what? Well, are you coming home for a cup of tea? <laughs> yeah. Will you be at home tonight? You know? Yeah, I know. Everything's good. But there are just too many people. I think if I was pushed to shove, you say, what's the problem? I would say there's too many people. That That is the bottom line. Yeah. But of course, it, like every other animal, how do you restrict it? You know, and well, I'm not going to stop having children. You know. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Well, it's well, biological right to have children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who's going to be the one that calls the number? It's not going to be me. Exactly. It's, and, it's... and although there are lots of people out there who are concerned about population growth and although the per capita growth rate is slowing and it may plateau and come yeah. it, it's a slow slow job mm, i know it's um anyway, also... let's... <laughs> let's change the subject happier <laughs> a bit morbid i know yeah it's um well to it i was just gonna very quickly acknowledge the elephant in the room as well of course, um, very quickly, <laughs> T- tiny on your shoulder, shoulder. Um, we're um, obviously we've just been through lockdown and a whole, huge COVID epidemic, and obviously there's a huge, uh, big talk about zoonotic diseases and how um, the wrong kind of interactions with wildlife and deforestation and things like that contribute to this. And well, I hate cruelty. I hate cruelty. I yeah. hate the wet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Markets where they they, they they cram live and dead animals together with live and sellers. It, it, it's not a surprise that mm. SARS and, and MERS and COVID 19 have started in the same way from the same kind of thing. Mm. Um, and, and I think there is definite evidence that a disrespect for biodiversity, for wildlife, for wild animals is 
is partly to blame for all this. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. It's caused a conversation at least. I think that's all we need is the catalyst and then these kind of things just become... Uh, they gain their own momentum and suddenly there's a huge awareness whereas there weren't I wasn't thinking about a zoonotic disease um a year ago at all but you I say was... it's huge but I mean yeah. I mean only only a million have died yeah is that right I mean you know uh, uh, Spanish flu at the turn of the century mm. last century killed what the 18 million more yeah know, yeah it was enormous. Mm. So, you know, we, we, we forget these things. Mm. Yeah, that's it. But will we learn? But yeah, um, going on to... No, not. <laughs> yeah, yeah as, as we were just saying, probably not. But uh, we were... Yeah, let's, let's go on to something a bit, more, a bit more positive. Let's talk about a little bit about bugs, I think. That's probably, that's probably a, a good place to start, yeah? All, all things creepy-crawly, invertebrate Invertebrates, the majority of organisms on Earth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I always tell people that uh, the percentage of animals on Earth that have a backbone is less than 3%, 2.9%. And they go, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's everything from aardvarks to zebras. Blue whales, bats, cats, rats, mammals, amphibians, fish, birds, you, uh, you know, it, yeah, 2.9%. Mm. And the majority is either plants, which is a smaller proportion, 14%, say, and the rest is all in, invertebrates. And the majority of those are, are insects. Yeah. So, you know, if, if I was, if an explorer came from, as Carl Sagan would have said, from one of the billions and billions of stars. <laughs> if he came down to sort of assess the Earth in terms of what it had, mm. and they were not impressed with size, they were, you know, un unsizedest, they would say, well, you know, the majority of, of, of creatures, a thing, this is a planet of, of things with six legs or more. I mean, you know, if you don't have six or more legs, you know, yeah, nowhere, buddy. This is, this is it in terms of biomass in terms of species richness, in terms of ecological input, the, the, the way ecosystems work. I mean, I, I was always interested in, in animals and plants as a kid. I mean, mm. I, I can't really remember not being, you know, that's, but and I went to Edinburgh to do a degree in zoology, of course. Mm -hmm. Zoology, you should say. Uh, apparently, you should say zoology or zoology. Because zoology. the people say zoology, which should have three O's in it. Should be Z-O-O-O. -O -O. Oh, yeah. I can understand that. Yeah. <laughs> so, zoology is... Zoology. Is, yeah. Anyway, I, <laughs> I had a great uh, you know, time there, three, th uh, three years. But it was only in my second year that I realized just how important insects were. So we were off as a class to the west coast of Scotland and all my classmates were looking for badgers and owls and slow worms and eagles and yeah, not finding any because mm. they're hard to find, you know? Yeah. And yet at my feet, there were literally tens of thousands of wood ants just scurrying about doing their thing. And I bent down and I watched them for half an hour. And I, I realized that, that, you know, if you don't understand what insects are doing, you don't understand anything. You, mm. you can't call yourself an ecologist. You can't call yourself a biologist or a zoologist if you 
if you only work on pandas or whales or something. If you mm. want to understand how the world works, the place where we live, and that really, I suppose, is what I've been trying to do all my born days, mm. is to understand how it all works. Uh, of course, I won't. But I'm at a jolly good stab at it. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. It's a good shot. It's... Um... No, it's uh, my. I think my interest in um, in the natural world actually came from my granddad. He recorded on VHS videotapes. He recorded, yeah, remember them? I remember them. Uh, on he recorded on VHS, and he just wrote um, David Attenborough on it. And it was actually the uh, the Trials of Life series. Yeah, by David Attenborough. I remember the intro sequence of all the animals like spinning around uh, counterclockwise and things like that. And that just seemed to just spark something something within me. And when I was going through school, I never thought I was clever enough to go and, and study zoology and things like that, even though my like families and friends kept saying that I had an encyclopedic knowledge of certain animals, especially prehistoric animals and things like that. So I went to study... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it was more. I I was never too interested in dinosaurs. It was uh, well, I did like dinosaurs, but it was things pre like pre dinosaurs and post dinosaurs prehistory. So that's things like the Carboniferous period, which you might appreciate. Exactly. Yeah, big insects. Oh, yeah, Arthropleura and Meganeura, big big millipedes, big dragonflies, that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. If I could go back in time to Earth's history, where would I go? And it would be definitely 300 million years ago in the Carboniferous lush swamp forest. Totally My agree. That would be just awesome. In fact, yeah. we should have a film about that. We should make a film about that. And, and just choose, like, you know, H.G. Wells, you know, time machine. You can just write, <laughs> let's go to the Carboniferous. <laughs> it would... It would, it would it, it would all have to be CGI. It would look, it would look awful. I know. Well, the the walking with I remember watching Walking with Dinosaurs as a kid, which my granddad also taped for me on VHS. And I remember how realistic I thought the puppets were. If they managed to watch it again now, it looks really. <laughs> yeah, no, it looks it's dated now. Yeah, <laughs> it's very dated now, but. If you could get uh, like the teams that are behind, uh, like the Muppets and and Fraggle Rock and things like that, to make realistic Carboniferous periods, giant insects and giant amphibians, then I think we'll be on to a, a winning ticket. Be awesome. I mean, it, it's it's interesting that you, of course, mentioned Attenborough, and I I interviewed at Oxford for many, many years, and mm. I often ask interviewees, you know, very nervous, is what what first got you in into biology? And five out of ten would say, oh, "I watched an Attenborough documentary." You know, and you go, "Wow, that's it." You know, so th this guy has had enormous pull, and yeah. he's been around a long time. I mean, I indeed remember watching a black and white TV in my house. I must have been ten, and there was a very early Attenborough, and he was talking about Zoo the maybe. habits of a garden spider. Mm. Uh, okay, it hadn't occurred to me at ten. A, that there was even a thing called sex, but B, that <laughs> garden spiders would do it. So, so <laughs> I'm watching this thing and he's saying, and the male spider 
charges his pulps with sperm and advances towards the female. And I'm going, Jesus, this is amazing! Great impression. <laughs> and, and it was just, it was just that, that I can remember that very clearly. I've been trying to find that clip, uh, but I, I can't find it. It may have been, you know, overdone or, you know, thrown out. But, mm. but I mean, certainly he's got an enormous pull. And he's, he's been in the industry for a long time. This is something that I sometimes get annoyed about you know, the, the media the mm. press say oh is this the new attenborough and you know just stop i know stop, please because, never be in a I, attenborough. i've been suggested that oh, is george taking over the mantle of Edmund? and and chris packham is he even brian cox was uh, is this the new attenborough no he's a physicist <laughs> you know and and the trouble is there will never be another attenborough no so exactly. i wish they just stop banging on about it. I wish you'd just say, he's, he made the genre. He was there at the beginning and we've now moved on so far and he's contributed for an enormous amount of time. There will be other people who will, you know, present in an interesting way, in a different way, but you'll never get an, an amber. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I totally, totally agree. It's, um, <clears throat> he's sort of, he's a bit, <laughs> He's a bit of a dynamo, really. Yeah, he's, and he he described himself as being quite old-fashioned, and he so he's sort of this lovely, comfortable voice, really into intellectual voice, very easy on the ears, and he's never he's a he's lot not, over the years. I mean, if you yeah. hear his early stuff, it's quite high pitch, it's quite animated, it's quite sort of. Humming. I remember. I've yeah, heard I remember. It, yeah. And then it gets sort of deeper and darker, and it changes through time. Until you get the sort of the classic David Attenborough mm. standing here in front of the Pride of Lions. And you go, yeah, that's the way you do presenting. In fact, when I started presenting, when I had to do a piece to camera, you know, mm. you, you, you would learn it and, and you would hear yourself going, well, I'm standing. And you go, no, stop. <laughs> stop. <That's, laughs> you're not doing a pastiche. This is something different. You know, yeah. This is you. Right? And you just have to be yourself. Yes, yeah, totally. Um, well, yeah, well, it's, um, if there's anything to to um, start you off, I suppose, watching a few Attenborough documentaries, it's not going to do any harm, is it? But, um, yeah, it's he, he's, he's contributed so much, he really has. But one of the, the going back to Bugs, uh, the one, one big thing that stuck with me with the Trials of Life documentary that David Attenborough did was Army Ants, and had just how it just the way he was talking about it not not so much the way it was being filmed because it was old footage it was still film film cameras and things like that um and it was quite grainy because obviously it's in the darkness the heart of darkness you know in in south america is it army ants south america yeah uh, yeah and and then that i think uh, just gave me a poke just to have a look at what army ants are in books and then I found out that like indigenous people um, used army ants as sutures for wounds and things like this, and it just set me off on a bit of a bit of a tangent. And I know that you've had a big uh, interest in ants specifically because you did a documentary on them. It's I did I? Yeah, yeah. planet yeah. ant, isn't it? Well, it was it was um, yeah. not not army ants, of course. It was it was a leaf cutter ants, which yeah. we we had a colony uh, in a in Glasgow. Mm. 
which actually had a very sad ending, very sad ending, which I can oh. reveal now. So we we filmed them in this specially built uh, set with you know various places to forage, and we could film right in the nest. We, we could film chambers that we'd made, mm. and we could count how many soldiers were coming in and out of various areas. It was it was really good. I, all the documentaries I've made, uh, we try and get in some really interesting science and some new science, uh, you know, so that hasn't been seen, hasn't been filmed ever before. Mm. But that at the end of filming, the whole colony was taken away to uh, a small zoo between Edinburgh um, and Glasgow. Uh, and it would survive there as a, as a sort of, you know, I mean, don't forget that these are in their home country viewed as agri agricultural pests. And that's why we got hold of it. Because mm. this whole whole colony and nest and queen was a, a, about to be fired, basically, you know, so we yeah, yeah. and basically grabbed the whole thing. But um, it caught fire. The the zoo caught fire and burnt down. Wow! With with the army ants with, with the uh, ants in it. Oh my god! But um, you, you were saying about army ants, and I I don't know if you saw that great se sequence in. Uh, uh, the lost land of the jaguar, where I, I attempted to film inside a, a nesting aggregation of yeah, army ants. The, the bivouac, this, yeah. With a probe camera. Well, because I didn't, it, I, I was so, so excited about having this, this probe camera that I could <laughs> stick right into the middle of this massive ants, hoping to find the queen in there somewhere, you know, probe it in. And it, it didn't occur to me that the, yeah, the actual that, camera probe <laughs> was a, an M4 for army ants to swarm up and attack me. I thought that they'd just not do it. I didn't even think. So I'm sticking this thing in, in the hole. And suddenly, like out of nowhere, these huge jaws, soldiers just come storming up the, up the, up the cable all over my hands and I just I was just nailed and I went I went running off into the jungle going ah, ah. <laughs> classic yeah. yeah all the bits you think that they won't show that's the bits they show <laughs> yeah. if you hurt yourself if you get nailed if you fall over if you're stung if you throw up faint bleed in any place at all that's the bit they'll show yeah or fall in a river all fall in a river <laughs> yeah. I faked that. I was joking. I was horsing about. And someone jumped That's in after you, yeah. So I fell back. <laughs> it's only up to my knees, this thing, right? Yeah, yeah. It was quite fast flowing, and I was a bit surprised at how fast flowing it was. <laughs> the director went, quick, save him! And these guys <laughs> dive in to get me, and I'm, I'm standing up saying, hey, thanks, guy. It's only up to my knees, okay? Yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. And yeah. I said, please don't use that bit. Oh, yes. <laughs> we used it in the introduction, in the trailer, and in the program. Yeah, it's, and it was, <laughs> it's, um, it's always it's bits like uh, the urchicating hairs from the, um, uh, from the, well, the wandering, Goliath. Like the, the big spider. Uh, yeah, Goliath birdie. Yeah. Oh, Jordan, that was, you'd have loved that night. Oh, yeah. We were searching for this thing for five hours. Literally, it was hotter than Hades, humid, with a team of about 10 out. And there's sort of experts from the area who were, you know, who, who are used to finding these things. Cool. 
oh, could we find one? And the time is ticking away. We're yeah. all knackered. We all, all we can think of is a hammock. That's all we can think of. And suddenly there's a call, you know, hey, there's a Goliath spider. So go over there. <laughs> and of course, once they go back, back in their hole, they, it's the devil-owned job, to, you know, to, mm. to actually lure them out. Naturally. And you have to have it on camera. You, you can't stick a camera in the hole and go, well, down there is the world's biggest. Like, that's not going to work. You, you have to be holding it in your mm. hand. Like yeah, this. yeah. So I use the you know trick of the grass stop, which you which only works once, right? If you if you if you blow it, it won't come out again. That's it. So got the grass blade and stuck it in the hole. It, it got hold of the end, and I knew I had to be very careful. If it's a fast jerk, it'll let go. Hmm. You just got to pull it steadily so it just keeps, and it came out. And then I stuck the blade of my panga behind it, hmm. so I could then have it in the open. And she was brilliant. She performed beautifully. And she, she sat in my hands and even jumped at the camera. And I the saw camera her, yeah. went, ah! <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame him. The but thing the was inch long fangs. <laughs> and they were in my face. They were down my throat. Yeah. <laughs> what a night that was. What a night. Yeah. I've had... Um... Oh God, I'm I'm so jealous, George. <laughs> but, um, no, 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 it's fine. It's um, I've I've had I've I knew a private collector when I was living in in Leicestershire that collected um tarantulas, and he had like grey smoke tarantulas and you know pink rose hairs, and then he got out this he sh- don't didn't know if he even should have been he should have had it, but he had a Goliath bird eater, and um I'm slightly. There's a lot of grey areas yeah, in the ownership. It's not, I agree. It's not as clean and squeaky as it should. I mean, I much prefer to see them in there. I don't like taking them out of their home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Even if they're weird. Mm, no, I, t- I totally agree. I was a bit ignorant back then, I suppose. I was a bit younger. But he told me to put my hands flat down on the on the tabletop, and he just let this goliath bird eater walk across the tops of my hands and i was just just expecting it to just walk across and i had the gray smoke uh tarantula walk across and it just felt like a big hairy eight-legged hamster pretty much walking across your hands uh, <laughs> so the only way i can describe it is a big hairy eight-legged hamster but the bird eater i thought was gonna oh it's just walking along uh, and then it stopped in between both both hands and then all of a sudden it was um, like sort of gritting its um, fangs or what would you call it? Celery? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Celery and the fangs on the end, yeah. Yeah, that was doing that. So it was sort of grinding them or like how you'd sh- have a shot like a knife steel in a kitchen. Yeah. That's it. And oh. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh yeah, I, just, I tensed a little bit, but he... All of a sudden, she just started to move again. But I thought I had my life was flashing right before my eyes. The the fangs on this thing. The the interesting thing about tarantulas is the 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 new world tarantulas are fine. Mm. They they flick hairs from the abdomen. They're very peaceable. They don't attack unless you handle them badly. Mm -hmm. The the old world tarantulas, the Indian tarantulas, different kettle of fish. They. Mm. They haven't got the earth getting hairs. Their defense and attack is right. Yep. Yeah, straight off. So, I mean, I mean, if anybody said, 
here's an Indian tarantula. Do you want to hold it? No, thank you. <laughs> I'll stay with the giant bird eater. Thanks very much. That's it. Yeah, it's um. What there's a tarantula called a blue. Is it a blue cobalt? Yeah. Is that, yeah. He had he had one of them as well, and all he had to do was he was he had a long long uh, pair of forceps, like long pair of tweezers, and he was just reaching in to get the the water cup out and pull it out of the substrate. And all he did was tap one hair and this blue cobalt came rushing out of its hole, fangs bared, and was trying to leap out of the tank to try and get his hand. It was ridiculous. So I imagine that's one of them old worlds. <laughs> I, I don't like zoos. I, I, I can see the argument for having zoos and I know about the education argument, all the rest of it, and the the conservation programs and the breeding programs, I still don't like zoos. I yeah. just don't like them. Uh, and I, I get really upset when I see birds of prey and tigers in, in, you know, no matter how much cash you spend on the enclosure, it's still a minute area for what they should have. Yeah. And Especially they, tigers. They can make all the arguments they want. Oh, well, you know, their habitats being taken away. We must keep them in, in zoos so people can see them and i go well really i don't know it's i just yeah. don't i mean it, the zoos grew out of victorian freak shows you know to make money just you know have people come and gawp at animals and that's pretty much if you look at people in zoos or or aquaria that's pretty much what they do yeah did you um, um sorry carry on no i i i just still cannot quite bring myself to to see zoos as a universally good thing yeah no i'd I'd have to agree with you on that i think uh you mentioned tigers uh did you ever see the documentary series the tiger king because i think that highlights the the horribleness about that weird guy yeah that's it that weird guy (laughs) yeah joe exotic I just, I every, I know, I know this sounds terrible, but every mm-hmm. time some guy, and it's normally guys mm. who have pet tigers that they've ra- raised from young, every time one of them gets clawed, mm. I go, yes, <laughs> no, it was going to happen, buddy. And then there's some other guy who like lives with wolves. Okay, he might be lucky most of the time, but one day, one day his number will be up. Yeah, and the wolves are going to go. Uh, you know what? I'm sick of this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Observe wild animals. Don't try to live with them. Don't try. There's, there's many biologists who say, oh, yeah, I want to live with the animals so I can understand them. No, mm-hmm. you can't understand a wild animal by living with it. Mm-hmm. It will it eat your the point. eventually. <laughs> That's it. That is, yeah, to- totally agree. It's um, from a, uh, a, a respectable distance. Yeah. Nothing. That's it. Anything. Yeah, there is. <laughs> I, I have to. I totally, totally agree. It's um, it's 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 um, it's a tough one trying to get people aware that it's it's completely artificial. Like the whole the whole concept of a zoo. And even if you give it the pro- proper enrichment and proper uh, what proper food and things like that, is nothing compared to 
the miles and miles that say a tiger has to has to uh, go in in the wild just to mark its territory just to look for proper food just to do the correct amount of exercise and things like that um, I think the, the the average yeah. area for a tiger for a male tiger is something like 25 square miles That's, yeah yeah it's yeah so, and, and we've got 8000 square feet here for them to uh, to lounge about in yes <laughs> Yeah, that's and it. It's even worse with uh, higher animals, you know, primates. Mm. I just, I just cannot abide it. I cannot. I mean, with all the enrichment in the world, okay, mm. you could say, well, these are all rescue animals that couldn't go back to the wild, and that, you know, we want them to have a, as happy a, a time on Earth as as we can make. And I suppose you could make that argument, mm. you know, but but it's depressing. depressing. Yeah. Yeah, it it is when you. Well, the happier things, John. That's two miserable things. <laughs> Come on. I know. I'm not watching this rubbish. <laughs> right, happy. Let's talk about happy, 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 happy. Well, you were yeah. you were on about you know what you might do in the future. You know, might go. Well, you know, you can never. Hmm. One of the things I always told my students at Oxford yeah. is you never know what's around the corner. I mean, uh, as a kid, I had a really bad stammer. I mean, off the scale, mm. off the scale. Uh, you know, I've never heard a worse stammer. And it got worse and worse and worse until I was 14 years old when it was so bad I couldn't speak at all. In fact, it wasn't that I couldn't speak. I just didn't speak because it was pointless. Mm. And if somebody had come back from now or... <laughs> the future and said, hi, George, well, you know, you've got a pretty, pretty spectacular stammer there, buddy, uh, but you're going to be a lecturer at Oxford University for 25 years. And when you finish that, you're going to be a television presenter. I'd have gone, surely not, you know, and you never expected that. And, but yeah, you are. And, and that, that's the most unexpected thing that I think I could ever have imagined. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's very optimistic. A uh, very, very optimistic way of looking at things. I think how how I saw uh, uh, the natural world when I was, say, as young as you were when you had your stammer um, is so far removed from how I see the natural world now. I feel so, even though I'm sure there's, there was so much more to learn about the natural world and how we need what we need to do to preserve it, um it's it just it's it's it's, it's it, <laughs> i can't even get the words out how how uh more ter- like switched on i am compared to what what i was when i was when i was 15 i used to have this magical uh view of the natural world that it could never possibly be uh damaged in any way it's far too huge and far too um like this the you know the might and the majesty of the natural world how can human the human race have an impact on such a thing and that was back in the 90s and how long ago yeah 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 so now i have such a, a completely different outlook on things and when i think of that and then i think of all the future generations like we mentioned before their outlook is my out- outlook now but they've, that's how they've started, I suppose. It changes very slowly. It's yeah. this shifting syndrome. The baseline of what is normal mm. that shifts imperceptibly every year down. So mm. 
uh, for, uh, for kids today who didn't have the experience that you had. Mm. This is the new normal. This is the new. This is why in the UK we've been able to lose fifty percent of in, insect biomass mm. in fifty years because it just is imperceptibly shifted down year on year pesticides with land use habitat loss mm. all the rest of it and so w when i talk to 80 year olds about what they remember mm. as children they talk about clouds clouds of <laughs> butterflies yeah. i've never seen a cloud of butterflies except abroad in in some jungle somewhere i haven't seen that but yet, and, and I would think, well, they're making it up. They're, they're a bit senile, you know, they're, they're going a bit, you know, clouds about a flood. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. It was true, but it was true. In the yeah. 40s and 50s, there were a lot more insects around. Clouds of butterflies would not have been un, uncommon. Yeah. And yet, today, you know, you go out and you, you see a couple flitting around, you know. Uh, and it's that we become used to the new normal so quickly. Yeah. And so it's, it's, but I mean, I, I, when I finished my degree at Edinburgh in mm. 1975, I actually believed that there would be some time in the future, not too far away, where we would describe all the species on earth. We would name it all. We'd, we'd get the job done. You right. know? We'd name everything. It's never going to happen. No. We, we've only named a million, 1.6 million of everything. The majority of those are insects. We know now pretty pretty accurately, or more or less an estimate, but it's fairly accurate, that there are between eight and 10 million undescribed insect species out there. So A, we can't describe them all. The habitat is going, we are losing things faster than we could ever describe them. Mm. So the reality of life today for us is that the majority of species on earth will become extinct before we even knew they were there. Yeah. And that is, you know, after 300 years of biology, of handing things name of names of describing things, we're now asking uh, questions that I never imagined in mm. my worst nightmares that we'd be asking. We're saying things like, well, you know, Yes, we're losing species, very bad biodiversity is going down, a bit of a problem here. Uh, but look, we, we've got 200 species of owls in the world. Um, do we need them all? You know, are some owls, you know, not doing their fair share? You know, which owls do we have to keep? Because they're really important to mm. keep owlishness going, you know. Are there some owls that really aren't making, making the weight? Let's get rid of them. Mm. But th that's the sort of questions that <laughs> we're having Ridiculous. to ask. <laughs> yeah. How do you value a species? How do you say that species of ant is as valuable as this species of fish or that species of owl? It's, mm. you can't do it. No. Well, they're all uh, just as important as each other because they all interconnect. Everything interconnects. They, they like, absolutely. And, I, and I, I often get asked questions in talks. You know, I get somebody stands up and goes, uh, Dr. Gavin, what, are, what is the purpose of a, of a wasp? I knew you were going to say wasp. Purpose of a wasp? What, what, what do you mean purpose? You, the purpose of a wasp, like the purpose of a fly, or mm. the purpose of a panda, or the purpose of you, sir, <laughs> is to make more of you. That's, that's the only purpose around. That's, that's the imperative, is to make more wasps, more flies, more pandas, more you.
There, there is no, if you're hunting for a higher purpose, you know, forget it. You know, yeah. it's, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Reproduce. And unfortunately, we've been doing rather well at it. Yeah, rather well. Yeah. But, um, yeah, if we carry on with all this, all this cat capitalism lark and all this deforestation and things like that, then, yeah, we won't be able to feed feed all these mouths that we're so eager to to create well the, the, uh... the, the bizarre thing actually when you talk about food is mm. the, uh, the sort of pesticide industry and it's a big rich industry yeah makes a lot of money is desperate to convince everybody that you've got to keep the insect hordes at bay somehow you're going to spray the hell out of them that's the only way it's going to work mm. but in actual fact the, the world health say well no actually we we waste currently a third of the food we grow. A third, 30% mm. is wasted before anybody eats it. Uh, and some people have estimated that if you remove pesticides completely and you use other techniques, biocontrol, you know, not growing huge acreages of the same thing, you know, which is just asking for trouble. Mm. You know, if you did other things, if you took pesticides out, you, you might, have a decrease in loss of between 10 and 15 percent yeah and yet we're wasting a third of all the food and of course by not spraying pesticides you would encourage bees you encourage wasps all the things that normally clean up the pests in very mm. colors mm -hmm. you know so we're we're on a treadmill just putting pesticides on that become ineffective and then, then you get secondary pests coming in. You put more pesticides on you and you keep running on this treadmill. Stop, get off the treadmill, you know, it, take the chance, you know, and I think you'd be surprised uh, that it might not be as cataclysmically awful as the pesticide industry seems to make out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, we are coming to the Wait end of, of this chat. Oh, just warming up, Jordan. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. I've I've actually had to kick the misses and the kids out of the out of the flat to be able to record this <laughs> because no no. Natu naturally, kids <laughs> make quite a lot of noise, and uh, so they've just gone to their parents-in-law, but they're coming back very, 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 very soon. But who can forget that fantastic clip when the politician was? Yes, and uh, I think the economic value. And the door opens it. Daddy! <laughs> and of course, I love that clip. It was brilliant. And everybody had <laughs> uh, their heart and him. It did, it, it did his cause more good, that little kid coming in. It did. And all the fluster and flummery that he was talking about. He's a human being. Yeah. And, and you know, it was great. It was great. He's one of us. <laughs> one of us. One of us. If all of them. So just to just to leave on a on a positive note, what and I asked um, Erica McAllister this, and she hates this question apparently. But what is your favourite um, terrestrial invertebrate? What's your favourite insect? Okay, well I I could say I've got five or six insects named after me, which is a great honour. That's really, yeah, yeah. really cool. Where That's really cool. Name something. So I couldn't really have any of those because that would be really cheating. A bit cheesy. Mm -hmm. uh, the bot fly, the human mm. bot fly. I think that is one of evolution's uh, most incredible beasts. So it's a bee-sized bee fly that couldn't possibly lay an egg on your head or your face 
because you'd splat it because it's the size of a bee. Mm-hmm. But instead, it catches a mosquito in the air and it holds it very gently and it lays an egg on the abdomen and then it goes, fly, my beauty. <laughs> and the mosquito flies off with a payload of botfly eggs on its abdomen. It then finds you asleep in your hammock. And as it's feeding, a botfly egg hatches and goes straight into your skin. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. How did that evolve? We were talking about this on the That's phone. Yeah. How, how did this happen? How did this relationship happen? <laughs> that it used a, a seeking missile mosquito. Yeah. And of course, the, the, the actual botfly, it doesn't know that this mosquito will go off and find a human or something else. Hmm. But that's what it does. Yeah. And, and somebody actually said, well, you see, you can't explain it in terms of evolution. That shows there must be a creator. And I said, well, it must be very twisted. If that's the best they can come up with. Yeah. That's really mean. Yeah. But if there's, if there's any uh, evolutionary biologist there who can explain to me the process by which a botfly evolves to to catch a midge and use it as a proxy to lay its eggs answers on a postcard please to george mcgavin <laughs> oxford university england the world thank you i think eric has got a work cut out for a i'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll ask her to answer that question for you Come on, eric, answer me that one mm. <laughs> brilliant well Thank you, George. I really do appreciate you coming on the show. It's been an absolute delight talking to you about all the horrors of deforestation and the the magical way that botflies use <laughs> mosquitoes as proxies to impregnate you with eggs. But uh, I, I really do appreciate it. It's been really lovely having you on. Just to plug a couple of things that you've been doing, um, have you got any, any work that you'd uh, like to share with the rest of us? Yes, I'm j- I've just started filming, I'm just about to start filming a new documentary for BBC Two, Ooh. all about dung, about sewage, about Brilliant. poo, which will be hitting your screens with a great uh, in the spring, hopefully. Fantastic. Can't wait for that. And uh, obviously, uh, we mentioned the Lost Land series. So on BBC iPlayer, I believe it is still running on BBC iPlayer. You can watch the Lost Land of the Jaguar, uh, like the Lost Land of the Volcano and Lost Land of the Tiger. And yeah, that's it. Yeah. Watch them all on BBC iPlayer. They're, They're an amazing, they're an amazing watch. They really are. That was brilliant. Thank you so much, uh, George, for coming on the podcast. Really did enjoy that. That was that was a lot of fun. Um, a lot of fun chatting to you. You can follow George, what he's been up to uh, on Twitter. George has a Twitter. It's Dr. George McGavin. You'll be able to find him there. Not to mention that the documentary that we talked about comes out, like he said, uh, spring, springtime. So we're going to I'm going to try and get George back on the podcast as well so we can have a little bit of a natter about that because obviously his lips were sealed uh, when we mentioned it before. But yes, we'll talk about that another day. If you want to uh, follow what the podcast is doing, uh, we've got a Facebook page at Cicada Lounge uh, Podcast Facebook and we also have the, the, the Twitter as well. So naturally, it's the Cicada Lounge Twitter. So follow us on there you've also got a production company that 
made this, which is Taito Productions. You'll be able to find all the episodes on there, as well as iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and many other different podcast distributors. But yeah, check us out on there. Like and subscribe, leave a review if you want to help the podcast. But yeah, finally, thank you so much for listening. I uh, really do appreciate it. We're starting to get really grounded in the pattern uh, that we want. It's, it's nice that we're going to be uploading every Sunday now, and that's what we're going to try and stick to. But yeah, thank you guys so much for your patience, and I will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>